Welcome to episode 212 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 212 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am doing great. Especially as I look at the date that this podcast comes out, it will be out on May 10th, and my book deadline is May 7th, and so in the future, when this episode comes out, I'll be done with my book. That is very exciting. 
You're not going to ask for an extension? Well, I got an extension already. So it was due on March 31st. And so March 31st was coming up soon. And I sent an email to my editor and I was like, hypothetically, what if I knew I was not going to be done by March 31st? What would happen? So I got an extension to May 7th. And so I'm working feverishly on it um, at the stage of the process where hour by hour, I'm like, oh, this book is so good. And then and 10 minutes later, I'm like, this book is terrible. And <laughs> It's really hard. It's hard to write a book. You haven't mentioned to listeners at all, but it's about... Well, I know I haven't really. I've kind of dropped hints here and there. So it's about how and why we want to kind of clean up what we're eating and clean up the products. You know, a lot of this has come out of our work here on this podcast, Melanie, with, you know, learning from you about some of the things like, for example, even Beauty Counter. You know, why does it matter what we put on our skin? Why does it matter what products we use? And I started to get interested in this through our work here on the podcast and started digging in and I started, you know, making changes in my own life. You know, I realized when I ate better foods, I felt better. And that just kind of carried over in, in all areas. And so that that's what the book is about. What's fascinating to me is, as I'm digging in for the research, that this is actually controversial. Like, you know, you and I know how important it is after the research we've done about what we put on our skin. That's why we choose Beauty Counter, right? Yes, 100%. But when you start digging in, it's actually controversial out there. There's a whole, you know, segment of people out there who are telling us, don't worry, it's okay. These products are safe. Parabens, perfectly safe. All these things. You're crazy if you're worried about them. And so it's kind of like with big tobacco. You know, big tobacco in the, the 1950s on, they all colluded and really went out of their way to convince us that smoking was great. We shouldn't worry about it. It's really, really shocking how pervasive that is in, I feel like a few key industries, like the cosmetic industry, like with beauty counter that we've talked about, where it's really evident because in a way the chapter closed is <laughs> that that's the tobacco industry, like you just said, because now it is, you know, pretty established that tobacco and smoking has all these negative effects. But for the longest time, for the longest time, that was suppressed. And well, yeah, they have internal memos that have been released now that people, you know, they've talked about in courts of law that the tobacco industry had this information and they they did not share it. That makes a, a consumer a little hesitant to just trust when people are like, oh, don't worry, you know, <laughs> GMO, no worries. It's all good. Yeah, actually, so the book I'm reading right now is called Metabolical. It's the lure and the lies of processed food, nutrition, and modern medicine. Do you know Dr. Robert Lustig, Jen? I do, yeah. Yeah, so this is actually really, really exciting because for listeners, I have my other show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, and on that show, so I have this document, this Google document, and I have all of these columns of guests, you know, people that I want to come on, people who are coming on, ideal people to reach out to. So on the column of people I want to bring on, it's exciting because I used to really actively reach out to these people, but now they often come to me, which is really, really exciting. Well, they don't come to me. They're their publishers or their publicists or their agents. So Robert Lustig had been on that list for quite a while because he's 
he's one of the go-to authorities on the role of particularly sugar and fructose in metabolic health and disease. <laughs> and so I've been wanting to interview him, but he has a book coming out. It releases May 4th. So it'll be out by the time this show airs. They came to me wanting him to come on my show for that book. And I've been reading it. So it's called Metabolical, The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition, and Modern Medicine. It talks about everything you were just talking about. Really? Yeah. Like the bias in the processed food industry, the funding. It reminds me of Gary Tobbs a lot in that it's kind of going through the, the history of everything and how ideas came to be and how they're treated in culture and society and the news and health. And it's very upsetting. <laughs> well, it is very upsetting because, I mean, it feels like gaslighting, you know, like I can just imagine already the reviews from my new book when it comes out. There'll be people who are like, oh my God, I learned so much. And people who are like, this is pseudoscience garbage. <laughs> BPA is fine. And, you know, all these chemicals are safe, but there'll be, you know, one or five. Everybody. <laughs> it's polarizing, you know, so many things are, but you know, one one thing I was working on today was a section about the precautionary principle. You, you've read about the precautionary principle, I'm sure. I know you follow it, whether you've read about it or not. It's the whole idea that, you know, we err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, these scientists are saying, uh-oh, beware of, you know, Roundup in your corn. And then other people are like, oh, it's no big deal. I eat Roundup for breakfast on purpose. I will stop myself from going on a tangent, but I think like Roundup and Monsanto is a perfect example of something that I think the evidence is so clear about the toxicity of it, but it is so political. It is so political. That's the part that's frustrating. And then, you know, there's a, a strong agenda for discrediting anyone who says that you should be cautious. That's the part that's, you know... We want to say, give our messages and have our be like, oh, that's good information. Thank you for sharing it. You know, we don't want people to say that's ridiculous and not true. (laughs) But when you start talking about things like beauty counter, for example, you know, we we find it to be very important and and something that we know makes a difference. But, you know, now it went back to the, the topic of tobacco. I don't think there'd be a single voice out there saying cigarettes are safe, tobacco is safe. But, we, you know, it, it took 50 years or however many years for people to be like, oh, that really was all bad information. You know, the, the doctors smoking and I choose this brand, you know, all those ads that they had back in the day. And it takes a while for everybody to catch up. One of his chapters is on the history of the dental industry and the role of fluoride. And actually what I really like about him is he admits to being fluoride agnostic. He's like something to the effect of he's not pro or against fluoride. So regardless of what you think about fluoride being toxic or not toxic, it's an example of putting all of this focus on fluoride and completely ignoring the role of sugar or diet in dental health. There's just a lot of energy is focused on things and it's very frustrating. Well, you know, when you go back to the work of Weston Price and the work he did in the 30s or whatever, he was a dentist, for anybody who doesn't know. Weston Price was a dentist, and he traveled the world with his wife, and they looked at people who were living in non-Westernized communities that were still eating traditional foods. Like, he went to Africa, and he went to all over the place. And people who were eating the way their ancestors had always eaten, 
always, not eating the modern diet, not eating processed foods. And he, as a dentist, was astonished by how beautiful their teeth were. They didn't have crooked teeth. They didn't have cavities. They weren't brushing with fluoride. They weren't doing any of that. They just ate nutritious foods. They got what they needed. And they all ate a wide variety of things. They weren't all following the same diet because they lived in different places. And they didn't have the same macronutrient ratio. I mean, it was just they, the only thing they had in common is they ate the real food that their ancestors had eaten for all of time. So they were healthy. And the thing about fluoride that I think is just concerning is it's an example of where not knowing the potential toxicity of it. And then it's a situation where the government, you know, fluorinated water, like infused our drinking water with it. I mean, you true, you could not drink the tap water, but that's something being forced on you. So <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot. And that that's just a great example of precautionary principle. You know, if you read things that say, here are some health concerns with this that you need to be aware of, You know, other people are like, oh, it's perfectly fine. You know, which do you listen to? Well, if you're following the precautionary principle, you have to say, well, okay, the drawbacks might be maybe my dental health won't be as good. Maybe my teeth won't be as strong. You're like, well, what did people do? I mean, back in the days of Weston Price, was he finding people with rotted out teeth in his travels? And he was like, here's some fluoride for you. No. (laughs) He found people with beautiful teeth. And, you know, I had the worst teeth. Growing up, my mouth, he talked about how the dental arches of the native population, their mouths were perfectly formed. Well, I had like, my teeth were so crooked. I had to have teeth pulled. My, I had to have so many you know, braces for years, lot and lot, lots and lots of dental work. Yeah, James Nestor talks about that a lot in his book, Breath, how our mouths became crowded. And it's really, really fascinating. Does he base it on nutrition? Mm-hmm. He thinks it's two things. If I'm recalling correctly, and I'll put a link in the show notes because I had him on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast, chewing. So like chewing whole foods. That strengthens our jaw and makes our mouth form correctly. That makes sense. Chewing and breathing. Becoming mouth breathers has affected our mouths. Interesting. I was also very much a mouth breather because I had my adenoids were all, I had to have my adenoids out when I was 21, but I had a hard time breathing. So yeah. I had a really good moment though. I'm also reading a book right now. Well, I'm reading like many books, but one of them is, have you heard of Dr. John Jaquish? I don't know how you say his last name. So he wrote, weightlifting is a waste of time. Oh, I've seen that book. It just popped up on Amazon when I was looking at something down in the recommended books. Oh, really? Yes. I like, I just, when did that come out? I just saw it popping up on Amazon. So it came out August 7th. Yeah, that's not that recent, but I just saw it last week, which is funny. His premise is that you do shorter, different things instead of like going to the gym. Yes. Well, so his book is Weightlifting is a Waste of Time, So is Cardio, and There's a Better Way to Have the Body You Want. He developed a system called X3 and its resistant bands. They sent it to me, which I'm really grateful for because it's very pricey. Yeah, they reached out to me and I've started reading the book and oh my goodness, it's actually blowing my mind about the potential of muscle building using resistance versus traditional weight lifting, blowing my mind. And I'm really excited because we get so many questions on this show about you know, exercise and muscle building, strength training. That's not my forte, exercise science. I don't study it as much as I could. Well, it's okay not to. We don't have to know everything. 
it's a knowledge bucket I would like to know more about, but I don't actively seek it out. I think because I'm not a weightlifter and I'm, it's not a passion of mine, but they came to me. And so it kind of just fell in my lap and reading this book. I'm really, really excited to do this episode because I'm learning so much. It, I mean, it's blowing my mind. He actually, he formed it because he originally was doing research on osteoporosis and you know how loading for bone health, you know, the way that you support bone health is by force onto your bones. And so he contemplated applying this concept to muscle. The part I'm reading right now is, or listening to, because I'm listening to the audiobook, he's talking all about intermittent fasting. He has a really great deep dive into fasting and he has a whole chapter and this relates to what we were just talking about, where he said they were trying to decide the best diet to promote for body composition. And he said their goal was to have no bias, like no cherry picking, just review the literature and see what is the best diet. And that's where they ultimately ended up, which is, I mean, basically a high protein, animal protein diet. But what happened that was funny was I was listening to it yesterday while working on my notes for Robert Lustig. And then he literally said, for more on learning more about processed sugar, check out the work of Robert Lustig. And I was like, oh, small world. So for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to all of these books. Can I tell you one really quick announcement? Sure. It's not really an announcement. It's not for sure. But Jen, I am seriously contemplating making, producing a serapeptase supplement. Very cool. We'll see. We'll see. Somebody reached out to me that I'm actually very excited to work with, I think. And I really liked his approach. And he was so excited about the serapeptase idea. And for listeners, serapeptase is the one supplement back in the beginning of this show that Jen and I realized that we both took at the time. I still take it. Jen, you, you don't. Yeah, I haven't taken it in a while. Yeah. It's a proteolytic enzyme by the Japanese silkworm and taking it, it works systemically and it can address a lot of health conditions because kind of like the way fasting works systemically, it works systemically to break down protein, like old proteins and can help with inflammation and pain and a lot of different things. But there's so much debate out there about the right form and should you have enteric coated serapeptase or should you have serapeptase and enteric coated capsules? And there's a lot of brands and I get asked all the time, like what brand do I recommend? And I'm like, I don't even know what brand I recommend because I'm on the fence. So now I'm thinking I should just do the research, find what I think is the best and produce it myself. Yeah. You know, I think that's a great idea. So stay tuned, listeners. Stay tuned. My research on supplements also coming out of my new book, I talked about how very frequently they're tainted. Yes, yes. And and like they might have prescription drugs in there instead of the supplement that it says it has. Like something completely crazy. And so I'm I am like scared to take things that I would order from like Amazon now. Literally scared. When it comes to supplements, I'm so cautious and so nervous. I do a lot of research and I'm very, very cautious to recommend supplements because of that. There's so little oversight. People aren't testing them to see what's really in there. You could say it has one thing, but it really has something completely different. Yeah. That's why it's so important that we really, really trust the brands that we work with. Like I think on this show, Bioptimizers is actually a sponsor of today. I'm not sure. They are. I see them up there, but you're right. And so when we partner with a brand, it's because we trust them and but, you know, when you're on Amazon, number one, you don't know the people making those. We know the people who are making bioptimizers, and they made them for themselves. We know that. We've had them on the show. We know them personally. 
We do. And so, you know, I trust that if they're making something, they want to take themselves. It's like, you know, why I trust that intermittent fasting is good for your brain health, because Mark Matson researched brain health, and then he does the intermittent fasting protocol that he thinks is best for it. So I'm like, I'm going to do what he does. Same thing with the bioptimizers. They created the supplements they wanted, so I trust them. But, you know, when you're buying them from one of those online places like Amazon, even if the company is good, you're not really certain that's what you're getting. What I learned with Delay, Don't Deny and counterfeiting of my own book is that people counterfeit things. And I know Amazon doesn't want people to counterfeit things, but there aren't enough safeguards in place. If Amazon ever wanted to talk to me about it, I would love to help them <laughs> figure out better safeguards for making sure their products are not counterfeited. I have lots of ideas. I was just thinking about it. The majority of the supplements that I do talk about, I personally have interviewed the people, like had them on the show. So like Autron Teal with Kim Brown, Bioptimizers with Wade and Matt, Quicksilver with Chris Shade, Sleep Remedy with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Like I know these people, (laughs) like I know them. (laughs) Exactly. That really is important. You know the supply chain, you know where it's coming from. You know someone isn't selling you a fake version of Bioptimizers. So I just would not buy supplements on Amazon at this time. I would not, just because I'm not certain that, you know, just with the quality control of my own book, I don't know that they've got that in place. Maybe they do, but I'm not certain. So the two brands that I do, there's really only on Amazon two brands I trust, and I always make sure I'm ordering from their actual store on Amazon. That's that's important. Yeah. So that's Pure Encapsulations and Thorn. I feel good about those brands. Even with that said, I always still look at the ingredients. The thing to make sure about that I learned the hard way with Delay Don't Deny is you have to look at the buy box to see who's selling it to you. And like Melanie just said, if it's coming from a third-party seller, you, you just don't know. I love Amazon. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan. I buy a ton of stuff on Amazon to this day. And I'm just careful about the buy box and who it's coming from. And I know there are a lot of amazing third-party sellers on Amazon. And they are the people that Amazon needs to get it all sorted out for their benefit. I don't know if I'm saying this well, because the people who are good third-party sellers on Amazon that are selling you legitimate products, their business is being affected negatively by the fact that you and I are now a little more suspicious and we don't know who to trust. I just had this call last week with this supplement creator. So I did a call yesterday with Dr. Kirk Parsley because his main thing is the sleep remedy supplement. And I was like, tell me everything about supplements. I was asking, should I sell on my own website? Would I sell on Amazon? And I didn't realize on Amazon, well, he was talking about the pros and cons to both, but did you know Amazon will, like if you have a supplement that become well-known, they pretty much like buy the title of it so that when you're Googling it, you will come up with Amazon regardless of even if it's on Amazon. Oh. Yeah. They want you to end up on Amazon for everything, even if it's not there. (laughs) And then he was talking about like the difference between selling it yourself on Amazon versus selling it through Amazon. And I'm like, oh, there's, there's a lot to take in. But see, the thing is, is that we all love Amazon. Well, I don't know. We don't all love Amazon. I'm sure some people don't. But I do. I've been using Amazon since the... I have an Amazon card. (laughs) I've been using it for so many years that I want it to be a place that I rely on, that I can trust what I'm getting there. I want it to be 
I'm rooting for Amazon to be the place, but I, I there's just a few things, and I know they're always wanting, you know, they care about the customers, but there's still just a few little things I think they could earn back some of that trust that they they did lose my trust with the whole, you know, the fact that people were buying counterfeit copies of my book for months before <laughs> before we figured out what was happening. Well, exciting things. We'll have to stay tuned. I really think I'm going to do it, though. I'm really excited. Well, enjoy. All right. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes. All right. So to get things started, we have some feedback from Liz. Liz from Texas. And the subject is in tears listening to episode 200. And Liz says, hi, Jen and Melanie. After listening to the Ask Me Anything episode 200, I was in tears of laughter during some of the questions. Jen's response to Trans-Siberian Orchestra during the Who Would You See in Concert post-COVID had me in stitches. Jen, I went and looked at the transcript to see what you... What did I say? I was dying. It's so funny. <laughs> I end up reading our transcripts. I <laughs> I basically said that one of my favorite songs was Epiphany from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and it's like 12 minutes of epicness. And you made some comment about like the gong bell that you would... Oh, yeah. <laughs> the gong show. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, okay. 12 minutes. <laughs> So for listeners, yeah, that was a fun episode. She says she had tears of gratitude and joy as well with the ending comments from thankful listeners. I agree with them wholeheartedly. I have only been living the IF lifestyle for seven and a half weeks, but I feel like I have gained years of knowledge from your podcast in such a short amount of time. I also enjoy the personal commonalities I share with the both of you. Your descriptions of your high school selves made me think I would have sat at the lunch table with the both of you. I also went back and read all of that. And Jen, we ultimately concluded we think we'd be at the same lunch table. Oh, we would have. I mean, 100%. We would have been. Yeah. I'm a 45-year-old questioner who loves research, Taylor Swift. I went to both the 1989 and Reputation Tours, Melanie. I tried to go to Red, but the tickets sold out in seconds. I'm so jealous. That's me talking. She says, James Taylor, he is fabulous in concert, Jen. Baked potatoes with butter and sour cream. So that's Jen. And scallops. That's me. Yum. She says, I was a little sad to be almost caught up with all of the IF podcast episodes. I started from episode two and searched incessantly for the mysterious episode one until I realized now I'll have time to check out some of your other podcasts. While I truly love listening to the two of you together, it's so interesting to find out you can't see each other when recording. I'm excited to start a rotation of your other podcasts throughout the week. To answer the superpower question for myself, if I had a superpower, it would be to ensure that the IF podcast will go on for decades to come. That's so nice. She says, I am so grateful for the inspiration and motivation that two of you have given me to live a healthier and happier lifestyle. Keep up the fantastic work. Hashtag friends in my head. So that was fun. That made me laugh. Thank you, Liz, for sending that. And you know, for listeners, if you haven't listened, you know, one thing that I love about this podcast is that I get to hang out with Melanie every week and I really enjoy it. It's like a highlight of my week. And so I think listeners would all, I mean, I love intermittent fasting stories so very much. It's a different guest every week. Melanie has the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast with a different guest every week. But if you like the give and play or you know, the, the give and take, the, the chatter between Melanie and me, listeners, check out the Life Lessons podcast. I don't know. I haven't talked about that one maybe in a while, but it's called Life Lessons. My co-host is Sherry Bullock. And so we have a similar kind of a thing. We have a different topic every week. It's not about fasting, but you'll get to know. Sherry, just as well as you know, Melanie and me. 
Yeah, it's really fun. I feel like with the two shows, it's kind of like in college, the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast is the intense class that I'm prepping an exam for all the time and really stressful. And I feel like I'm getting a grade on it. And this is like my fun extracurricular class. We still do a lot of research, obviously, but I, it's just, it's really, I enjoy this podcast a lot. Well, good. Yay. So shall we go on to our next question? Yes. And this is from Jin, J-I-N, as opposed to me, G-I-N. Wow. That's two interesting spellings of Jin together. Jin and Jin. All right. So the subject is my roller coaster journey with IF and finding balance. Hi, Jen and Melanie. I have been listening to your podcast since 2018 when I started my IF journey. I first found out about IF through various health-related podcasts like Dr. Rhonda Patrick and Tim Ferriss. Back then, I lived in San Francisco and was surrounded by all these health and biohacking people, which was a big impact on my lifestyle. When I first started IF, I started with a goal of losing five pounds and keeping it off forever. And... After about six months, I was able to lose those pesky five pounds. But then my mind kept on telling me, you can always be skinnier, the skinnier the better. Another six months of 24 with not enough calories to sustain my body. I was averaging 500 calories per day and running 30 miles per week. Oh my goodness. Yeah. My body started fighting back and that is what our bodies do, Melanie. You know, just a little side note there. I talk about this in Fast Feast Repeat. When we're in a a situation like this, our bodies are like, okay, we can't survive. And so then they start. This is exactly what she describes next when I was reading this when she sent it in. I'm like, yep, this is textbook what happens when you over-restrict. So she says, my body started fighting back with this unstoppable appetite for sugar and anything junk food. Donuts, cake, frosting, bags of trail mix, etc. I just couldn't control my body wanting calories and to get back to my healthy weight. So you see, just another side note from me. That's why I talk about in Fast Feast Repeat, the urge to binge is a warning sign that you're over-restricting for your body. 100%. And you know, you sometimes get it during the adjustment phase because your body isn't well-fueled during the fast. And so when you open your window, because you're not tapping into your fat stores well, you're not well-fueled, your body's like, feed me, feed me, feed me. But once you're fat adapted, that feeling goes away. But if it starts to come back later, after you've been fat adapted, don't ignore it. It is your body sending you a distress signal and you need to listen. All right. So she says, fast forward six months, I made up more than the five pounds I'd lost, even with my strict 24 fasting regimen. I finally came to realize that my hormones were all out of whack and really needed to feed my body after a visit to the holistic doctor and being diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Since then, I've been playing with the IF timing and really listening to my body and how to nourish it. After juggling with different IF schedules and methods, I now feel my healthiest with 14.10 and stopping to eat at 7 to 8. I make sure I eat breakfast to get my gut moving and make sure I don't feel starved like I used to when I was restricting to only four hours of eating at night on top of excessive cardio. I still enjoy running. I certainly make sure that I listen to my body and that my cortisol levels are in check. I have thrown out my scale and don't even care about how much I weigh anymore. I only care about if I'm starving or craving junk because that means my body is not being treated right. This is just a cautionary tale for those who are already fit and have a tendency to take it really hard on themselves and their bodies. Once you really start to listen to your body and be truly empathetic to it, 
You'll be able to make peace with it and how it looks and serves you instead of your weight goals and sizes. And thank you, you two, for educating people about this and letting people know that everyone is different and how we feel best and take care of ourselves comes from true self-love. Thank you, Jen. Well, that was fabulous. I don't really have any comments, just that everything she said, I agree with 100%. Yep. I don't want people to be afraid that that means 24 is too restrictive for a lot of people because it just depends. You know, she said she was eating 500 calories a day with 24 and also running 30 miles a week. That is definitely over restriction for anybody. There's no body on earth that's going to be happy with 500 calories a day and then running that level of activity. For me, I can eat a lot of food in a four-hour window. <laughs> you know, if I, I'm not eating 500 calories a day. I can guarantee you that. The few times I've ever tried to add things up, which I'm not good at, it always surprises me with how high it is. Like the amount of food that I eat, I eat a lot. I eat, you know, calorie-dense food. I eat a lot of food. So for her, though, for Jen, it sounds she's probably more of like a light eater, more of a restrained eater. And some people naturally like to eat, you know, like grandma who ate like a bird, for example. You know, people eat little bits of food here and there. So a 10-hour window might be what she needs to get the volume of food. Someone who eats like that in small amounts isn't going to be able to fit it into four hours. I'm so in awe of people like that because I'm a hearty eater like you, Jen. Don't be in awe of it. It's just different. It's not anything to aspire to. It's not better. I didn't mean it like as I aspire to it that way. I meant I'm in awe in that it's a state of being. I can't, I just can't imagine it. Like I can't really imagine a state where I feel satisfied eating lighter like that. Like some people are very happy and comfortable, like you said, you know, eating small amounts or, or even like eating small amounts all throughout the day. For me, it's just my brain doesn't work that way. Mine either. I like to eat a hearty amount. Yeah, me too. Me too. Which is a reason I love intermittent fasting. Low carb sort of caused that effect where I felt like I could finally eat a lot more and feel satiated. But IF was really the first time that I felt like I truly could eat what I wanted and not worry about the calories or the amount and just feel fulfilled and satiated. Well, for me... Both low-carb and low-fat left me unsatisfied and unsatiated. That's the big thing for me. I never felt satisfied without enough carbs. I never felt satisfied without enough fat. To be satisfied, I got to have a mixture of fat and carbs together. That's the only time that I feel satisfied. The volume of food, I got I to gotta feel satisfied or I'm not happy, so... I eat so much animal protein specifically during my window. It's just funny to me because so many people will say, how do you eat that much protein? And I'm like, I don't know. It's easy for me. Yeah, and see, I don't. I don't eat that much protein. I eat, I mean, I do eat protein, but like yesterday I had, I opened my window with two eggs over toast because Chad said, bought, Chad had bought extra eggs by accident. He's like, we got to eat these eggs. So I'm like, I can do it. So I opened my window with the two eggs over toast and then... At dinner time, I made chicken, but I didn't feel like having the chicken, so I didn't eat the chicken. I would have eaten the chicken probably. I know. I had yeah, I had couscous and I had carrots and I had kale with all you know strawberries and not strawberries, the cherries. I didn't have strawberries in there. It, had, it was dried cherries. It was actually a Green Chef meal, and Green Chef is also sponsoring today's episode. But I didn't eat the chicken. I didn't feel like eating it. But Chad had the chicken. It's just funny how different we are. 
Yeah, it is really funny. Similar, but different. Yep. All right. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes. Now we have a question from Linda, and her subject is when to eat carbs. I'm going to answer it in your eating window. Ah, ha, ha. Did you like that, Melody? That was wonderful. Moving on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sure her question is a little more nuanced than that. All right. She says, hello, Melanie and Jen. I just found your podcast a month ago, and I am enjoying catching up on all the episodes. A quick background. I am 57 years old and have been lifting weights and running since my 20s. I've never had to lose a lot of weight, but I've always been mindful of my weight since I am 5'1". I've been road racing for over 30 years and went low carb about 10 years ago. That caused some issues because I was still racing and had a hard time getting fat adapted. I now eat low-carb slash keto. I check my blood ketones here and there and have been wearing a CGM on and off for six months. I just got the levels program with the app. I am a data analyst and love the information. I work full-time and, like most people right now, I'm working from home. My fasting glucose and insulin are great. I get them tested at least once a year, and all my other health markers are very good. My question is, if I want to eat some carbs, when would be the best time to eat them? I get up around 4.15 to 5.15 a.m. I take a weightlifting class for 45 minutes, two to three days per week, and run three days per week. I usually do these workouts fasted. If I do a long run, 7 to 10 miles on the weekend, I may have a bar or some sort of fat like peanut butter before the run. During the week, I usually eat around 10.30 a.m., eggs, ground meat, and veggies. I may have some nuts and turkey breast with avocado and mayo before dinner and then protein and veggies for dinner around 6 p.m. Is it best to eat carbs with the first meal after my workout or with dinner? I've heard both recommended, especially since I usually work out fasted. All right, Linda, thank you so much for your question. So as she says at the end that she's heard both recommended, that is very true. I as well have heard both recommended. Some people say you should have your carbs later in the day, especially that it would promote sleep and that that's the best time to have them and you're more insulin sensitive. Some people say you're more insulin sensitive in the morning or that you should have them directly after workout. From everything that I've seen through the years and my personal experience, I find for me having my carbs, well, I do one meal a day, so I'm always eating in the evening, but having them later is what really works for me. And I feel like it seems to work for most people that I've seen or the majority. That said, this sounds like a cop-out answer, but I would play around and see, especially since you are a data junkie and you wear a CGM, I would see how it does affect you. Um, if you're not intrinsically, intuitively leaning towards one or the other, try it both ways and see when you have your carbs earlier, does it change your hunger levels, your satiety? How does it make you feel compared to having it later? I do feel like most people seem to do better with it later. What have you seen in the groups, Jen? I mean, this is not a question that has a one-size-fits-all answer. And and really, in my groups, we're not doing a lot of talking about timing of when should I eat whatever. We just eat. <laughs> eat what feels good to you. If you open with carbs and you feel bad, don't open with carbs. If you have your carbs later and you don't feel good having them later, don't have them later. That's really go by, you know, you're using your CGM for this. Like Melanie suggested, I think that's great advice. But go by how it makes you feel. And like like the I got caught up on the wording, you know, what is the best 
time to eat them. I mean, I don't, it depends. Best for what? Best for satiety? Best for sleep? Best for not storing them? Best for, I mean, there's so many possible second parts of that question, whereas the answer would be different. For me, I need to eat carbs close to when I go to sleep. If I don't have enough carbs, I can't sleep. Yeah, that's why the carbs really help me for sleep. One thing I forgot to mention, though, would be that usually, so when we're not working out, there's really only one modality for carbs to enter our glucose stores. So like for carbs to enter, to be stored as glycogen in the muscle or the liver, the exception is after exercise that actually sparks the release of, I forget what it's called. It's like what it's like non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, I think is what it's called. Basically there is a way for carbs to enter muscle glycogen stores independent of insulin. So without insulin, and that is after a workout. So if you do have your carbs right after your workout, you can actually shuttle those. One thing that I failed to mention though, and it could be a factor to consider is normally the way carbs enter the storage form of glycogen in our liver or our muscle is with insulin. <laughs> so we release insulin and that's how it enters. There is something called non-insulin mediated glucose uptake. So our muscles can actually take up carbs without the use of insulin. And the stimulator for that is exercise. The reason I say that is so that applies to when you're fasting. So if you're, say your blood sugar is high while fasting and then you do exercise, your muscles could actually take up glucose without the use of insulin, which is pretty cool. It also would indicate that your muscles are likely even more insulin sensitive after exercising because A, if you're eating carbs, you'll release insulin, which would encourage them to be stored as glycogen. But in addition, there's this other transport mechanism that's stimulated by exercise. So the point of that is that you might find that you're able to tolerate more carbs having them right after a workout, for example. So that could be something to consider. But again, it's going to come down to just finding what works for you. And again, that sounds like, you know, an answer where we're not giving us one answer, but it's because there's not one answer. Any other thoughts? I'm just really wondering what her goals are, you know, because she's eating low carb now. I, I don't know what she's trying to do. So that, like, is she trying to lose more weight? Is she maintaining? I just don't know. She just wants to incorporate more carbs because she misses them. That's the piece that I'm really missing a little bit. Was it in there and I missed it? Yeah, I don't think it's in there. I wonder if it might just be, especially with her wearing the CGM and everything, I would guess it might be either or what is providing the healthiest blood glucose profile with her wearing the CGM and everything like that. Or since she did say that she's always mindful of her weight, it might have something to do with maintaining her weight, maybe losing. Yeah. It's just that she's been low carb keto and wants to add back more carbs, I guess. And that's just, she just wants to add them back, I guess. And I guess she wants to add them back and not see issues from them. When can she add them back and not have a problem? But again, she's got the CGM. So I think that's the key is if she sees crazy blood glucose spikes, you know, like, oops, maybe that isn't the right thing to eat for me. Yeah. And I'll put a link in the show notes. I've done two episodes on CGMs and the episode with levels, I did interview them. The one I'd aired already was Nutrisense. I think when this comes out, I will have aired 
the levels episode as well. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes because you can learn more about a CGM. We didn't say what it was for listeners who are not familiar. It's a continuous glucose monitor and it's a device that you wear on your skin and it actually perpetually measures your blood glucose levels. Does it indirectly? It measures the interstitial fluid. It doesn't actually measure your blood, but it's pretty accurate and it can show you trends. So it can really show you how you are reacting to foods and how things are affecting your blood sugar levels. It's fascinating. And I have codes for both of them for discounts. So actually I think levels, the code I have is they're on a wait list, but my link lets you get it now rather than be on the wait list. And then the NutriSense code I think is Melanie Avalon and it's 15% off. So check out those episodes if you'd like to learn more about CGMs. Yes. All right. Sounds good. So now we have a question from Julianne. The subject is hyperglycemia, diabetes, gallstones. Julianne says, hello, thank you for your podcast. It is both informative and fun, and I appreciate it so much. I have been intermittent fasting for almost a year. Currently, I am back home due to the pandemic, and my family members are worried about my IF lifestyle. They claim that it it is dangerous, for it can cause hyperglycemia, diabetes, and also perhaps gallstones. Therefore, now I am fearful to continue this lifestyle. Do you have any insights that would help me quell these fears? And I wonder if she means hypoglycemia instead of hyperglycemia. Although, well, so, okay. So let's first, let's let's dig into, but it could actually be, intermittent fasting could cause transient hyperglycemia and <laughs> transient hypoglycemia. Really, honestly. So let's talk about how. Hyper is high blood glucose, hyperglycemia. That, and that's what Julianne mentioned. So we, we've seen, you know, through the dawn phenomenon, Dr. Fung writes about this in a blog post that I always share when people ask me personally about it. He does a great job explaining it. But basically, you know, when we wake up in the morning and we're in the fasted state, our liver dumps out some glycogen and makes our blood glucose go up. And so you can have a spike of your blood glucose, but you haven't eaten. And you're like, oh, my gosh, fasting is making my blood glucose go up. This must be dangerous. But it's actually your body clearing out some of that stored energy. We actually need it to get cleared out because having it stashed away is also not what we want. We want our bodies to use it up. So a temporary higher blood glucose at the beginning of fasting is is understandable. You also might have hypoglycemia, your blood glucose dropping, like if you're not fasting clean and your body releases insulin in response to whatever, you know, diet soda, and then your blood glucose crashes. So it really wasn't the fasting that caused it, but it happened in the fasted state because you weren't fasting clean. So that could happen as well. But is that something that is dangerously happening because of fasting? No. I wouldn't worry about that. I've never felt better steady blood glucose control than I have as an intermittent faster versus back in the day when I was eating frequently and I was on that blood glucose roller coaster. I would eat, my blood sugar would go up, it would crash, I would have to eat again. I was always up and down, up and down, and now I feel very steady. So what's that show, Mythbusters? Did you ever watch Mythbusters? I did, yeah. Myth busted. <laughs> All right. The second myth we're going to bust is that whether intermittent fasting will cause diabetes. And I assume you mean it's going to cause type 2 diabetes because it, it's not going to cause your pancreas to shut down, which would be type 1 diabetes. It's definitely not going to do that. As far as type 2 diabetes, not only is it not going to cause it, but it's very likely to correct it if you have it. 
I have had so many group members over the years and people on the Intermittent Fasting Stories podcast talk about how they were diagnosed as type 2 diabetic. Then after living the intermittent fasting lifestyle, their A1C came down so much thanks to fasting that now they're no longer medically classified as type 2 diabetic because their A1C is now normal. I've heard this time and time again. And if you don't want to take my word for it, then please read The Diabetes Code by Dr. Jason Fung. He explains it to you there. And you may trust his explanation more because he's a doctor who's worked with patients who's medically... I mean, he's got a study. It's really short. It's like a... I talk about it in Fast Feast Repeat. Go to Fast Feast Repeat. Get that book if you don't have it already. There's a section in there, and it'll point you to Dr. Fung's research with some of his patients through his clinic where he has had them come off of insulin and, like, reverse their type 2 diabetes. And and it was actually published in a in a journal. You can read about it. It's like a couple of case study kind of a thing. As far as gallstones, didn't we just talk about this, like, last week? Yes, episode 209. Go listen to 209. But again, myth busted. (laughs) We busted it in episode 209. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure I bet I know who you were listening to. (laughs) The person we talked about in episode 209. This is more of an anecdotal kind of a thing. But there have been so many members in the intermittent fasting groups that, you know, we talked about this in 209. If intermittent fasting led to a huge increase in gallstones, we would have seen a giant example of that in the groups, but we did not. Yeah. Just speaking to the gallstones, check out 209. We talk about it at length, length, length. But for that episode, I went and tried to find the studies about fasting and gallstones and I just couldn't find them. Like I was really, really expecting to find them because there is this idea popularized out there. And like the one study I found that we talked about was looking at fasting and gallstones, and it found that there was a transient increase, but then the longer you fast, and once you hit, I don't remember what it was, once you hit like 16 hours or so, there was actually a decreased potential for gallstones. So yeah, definitely check out that episode. The thing about gallstones that's so frustrating is the risk factors for gallstones are being overweight or losing weight. So it's kind of like The only way to not have the risk factor is never gain weight in your life. But if you have already gained the weight, you have an increased risk, and you could choose to keep the weight and not lose it. But really, any weight loss gives you an increased likelihood of having gallstones. So honestly, you're like, you know, darned if you do and darned if you don't. You can't win basically, except for never having gained weight to start with. And wouldn't we like to go back in time and be able to have that happen? But, you know. There's a similar thing with cholesterol as well, that people, you know, fasting can lead to a transient increase in cholesterol levels because your body is, you know, burning fat and using those transporters to transport the fat. I have recently been diving deep into the whole cholesterol world and Going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode of this show with as far as the confusing information out there, the studies surrounding cholesterol are so confusing. Like we have this idea, you know, the blanket statement seems to be HDL is good and LDL is bad. But then when you dive really deep into the literature and actually look at the numbers, LDL is extremely confusing. So some of the takeaways I've seen so far is like with LDL, It seems when you're on the very, very extreme, so really, really high LDL over a certain number does seem to correlate to heart disease. 
And I think really low tends to correlate to less risk for CVD, but the majority of the numbers that most people are in, the correlations that people often make are much more complicated and nuanced than they're made out to be. And high LDL does not really necessarily correlate the data. There's this video where Peter Atia talks about cholesterol and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It will blow your mind. It'll make you rethink everything you've ever thought about cholesterol. That was a cholesterol tangent. When I also read, I can't remember what it was, but it was the whole idea of cholesterol as a marker that there's something going on. High cholesterol could mean there's some issue, and we have the high cholesterol in response to the issue, but the cholesterol itself is not the problem. It's whatever caused you to have the high cholesterol that your cholesterol is trying to it's, it's kind of like blaming the fireman because the fire happened you know like the fireman you see every fire and every time there's a fire you see the fireman so you start to like extinguish the fireman you know like get rid of firemen firemen are dangerous they you know wherever there's a fireman there's a fire but really the firemen didn't cause it they just showed up in response and cholesterol is kind of like that and our body shows up like one of the things I think Peter Atia starts off that a lot of people will have really, really high cholesterol levels, especially on like carnivore type diets and a lot of low carb diets, but we'll have clear scans for, you know, plaque in the arteries. And he says, you know, if you don't have plaque in your arteries, it doesn't matter if you have sky high cholesterol, but you don't have plaque in your arteries, you do not have cardiovascular disease. Like you just don't. I want to find like the perfect person to interview about it because it's just really fascinating to me. And something to look at that can be really helpful is your triglyceride to HDL ratio. So when you get a cholesterol panel, there's triglycerides, there's LDL, there's HDL. What's even more confusing is LDL. And I think most a lot of people don't realize this. When you get your cholesterol panel, most likely the LDL is calculated, which means they didn't actually test your LDL. So those numbers can be off unless you specifically asked for testing LDL, it most likely is a calculation, not a test. And then the thing probably to focus on is triglycerides. Those are like where the issue I think for a lot of people really is. But if you look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio, that can be a pretty good indicator of your cardiovascular risk disease state and the lower, the better that ratio. So a lot of people will have high cholesterol, but their triglyceride to HDL ratio is 1.5 or lower. And that can be a really good indicator of health and high HDL seems to be very protective in either case. And one last thing, just because I've been reading about this recently is statins and low fat diets. While they reduce cholesterol, they tend to reduce more of the HDL rather than focusing on the quote bad LDL, even though this is, there's just so much here, even though LDL, there's different types of LDL and not, L, not all LDL is bad. There's just a lot. There's a lot. It's, it's a very complicated topic. And again, part of the problem is that experts don't agree. And that is why consumers are so confused. Because if, if the doctors don't agree, if the scientists don't agree, how are we supposed to know? So, you know, depending on who you listen to, it just gets more and more confusing when you start seeing the contradictory information. The reason I got on this train recently was I got my cholesterol panel back and my LDL was high and I was like, oh my gosh, it wasn't super high, especially looking at if you go into like the carnivore groups, a lot of them will have 
like very, very high numbers. So that's what made me really sit down and research what, what does this mean and the ratios and like I saw my panel and I was like, oh no, is this a problem? But then after I analyzed it through all of the different markers and ratios and everything, I actually walked away feeling very good about my cholesterol panel. So it's, it's really, really fascinating. So I definitely encourage listeners to take initiative to take charge of your own health and figure out, especially if you're testing things like this, figure out what's actually really going on. And there is a certain people who have a genetic tendency to more likely have issues with cholesterol. And that is something to keep in mind as well. So that's something that you could find out through a genetic test. So you could get self-decode for that. You could get inside tracker. I'll put links in the show notes to discounts for those. Do you think we've quelled Julianne's fears? Well, I hope so. But, you know, Again, I would I would encourage Julianne, read Fast Feast Repeat because I go into all of the, the benefits of intermittent fasting. And the scientists who study intermittent fasting, like Dr. Mark Matson, you know, the and the positive effects, they they generally take it up as a lifestyle themselves. And that right there should give you confidence. Yes, that is so true. The majority of the people talking about this, they implement it in their daily life. Yeah. It's like, what is that, Inside Tracker, the company that I talked to, Gil Blander, is that his name? You talked to him as well, right, from Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast? I'm actually this week recording with him. I haven't talked about this on the podcast, this podcast, but listeners, I, okay, wait, when does this come out? May 10th? Yeah. Well, while you're looking that up, let me tell you, the reason I brought him up is because he's a longevity expert. And when I interviewed him for intermittent fasting stories, he made a powerful statement. He said intermittent fasting is the number one thing he would recommend anybody do for longevity. And that's his expertise. And he knows all the things you can do. So when a scientist who studies longevity at that level and and is a heavy-hitting researcher just like Mark Matson, and they say intermittent fasting, number one thing I would do, that makes me listen. I wouldn't read like a BuzzFeed article telling me not to do it and take that seriously. <laughs> I thought on BuzzFeed not to do it. Okay, sorry. I'll think I'll listen to the people who research it and are doing it. Okay, so this comes out May 10th. On May 8th, Dave Asprey had his virtual online biohacking conference. If you saw that, I was actually in it, which is very exciting. With Gil Flander. So Inside Tracker is one of the guests in that online virtual conference and the video that we're recording in two days from now, we talk about all this. And I think we're, we, we might talk about my cholesterol panel. I'm not sure. We haven't decided yet which things we're going to talk about from my labs, but we're going to talk all about the company and how conventional blood tests are done versus ideal blood tests and my experience with Inside Tracker. And I'm really excited because I'm going to be in Dave Asprey's conference. <laughs> So yes, but in any case, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you would like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We talked about a lot of stuff in this episode and the show notes will have the full transcript and the links to everything we talked about. That will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 212. You can follow us on Instagram. I still love Instagram. I'm Melanie Avalon. Jen there is Jen Stevens. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think that's it. All right. 
Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.